identify the single most important event in all of human history, what do you think you'd pick as the most important thing? That'd be a, that'd be a challenging endeavor, I think, if you were just to think about world history, about all the characters that have played a role in world history, if you thought about all the different events that have happened that bear significance even to us today. Certainly there are a lot of important things that have happened in history, but if you were called upon to pin down just one, the most important event in human history, what would it be? I think we can do that. Actually, I don't think it's such a challenging uh, question for those of us who believe in the Word of God. Because I think we would all identify the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the single most important event of all of history. We've been talking about evidences in a series of lessons here on Sunday morning in the month of June. We've talked about the existence of God, about His creative work, how He created all the universe. We talked about His inspired Word. Today we want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we want to point out the fact that the evidence says, we're not just basing this upon blind leaps of faith, the evidence says that Jesus arose from the grave. Uh, really, when you think about important events in history, everything about the life of Jesus is critically important, right? Uh, definitely, we would talk about his virgin birth as being necessary to fulfill prophecies of Old Testament. We would talk about the sinless life that he lived as being absolutely necessary so that he could be the proper sacrifice for our sins. But all of that, you could take everything else about the life of Jesus as being true, but if you take away the resurrection, it would all be for nothing. If you take away the resurrection, everything else about the life of Jesus could be true, but take away the resurrection and we would have no hope. That's the gist of the reading that Mark read for us earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also, which are fallen asleep in Christ, are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, hope in Christ rather, we are of all men most miserable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Paul said the resurrection is critically important to us. Take it away, we have nothing. We are without hope. But he affirms positively, Christ is risen from the dead. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, he said Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Here I would suggest that Paul is pointing out that the resurrection perhaps is the most important proof. Many proofs that Jesus is the Son of God, the resurrection being the most critical proof of his role as the Son of God. And so this morning we want to talk about the evidence. The evidence says that Jesus rose from the grave. Actually, we're going to break this lesson into two parts, part this morning and part tonight. And so I hope that you can join us again this evening when we conclude this study. We're going to start out by talking about the death of Jesus. And that's what we're going to occupy our time with this morning. Then tonight we'll talk about the things that happened after he died. And someone said, well, why would, if you're talking about the resurrection, why, why are you going to spend a, a whole period talking about the death of Jesus? Well, first of all, we need to be reminded of that death of Jesus. Every Lord's Day we, we participate in the Lord's Supper to remember the sacrificial death that Jesus died on the cross. So it's very important for us to remember all that he suffered for us. But in regards to a study of evidence, before you can have a resurrection, what do you have to have? You've got to have a dead man, right? Before someone can raise from the dead, they have to be dead. 
And so it's very necessary from just, just from an evidence standpoint, it's necessary for us to prove that Jesus really did die on the cross of Calvary. That's what we're going to talk about in our lesson this morning. Before we go further, let me stop for just a moment to say thank you to everyone who's present. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, we have a beautiful Lord's Day in Middle Tennessee and a great privilege to be able to be together with one another to worship God and to encourage each other. We're glad that you're here to be a part of this. We have visitors. We're, we welcome our visitors. We're glad you're here. Scott, is our song leader this morning, is, well, sort of a visitor. He's from here, but he's, he's not here anymore. We're glad to have the Richards back and have him leading our singing this morning. We're just glad for everybody's presence and hope that when we get done this morning, we can honestly say... It was good for us to be here, and we certainly hope that God will be glorified by all we do. Let's talk about the death of Jesus, and let's just walk through the things that happened leading up to Jesus dying on the cross. I would break this down into into some categories. I would first talk about some things that happened before he was nailed on the cross. For want of a better terminology, I'll call them pre-crucifixion events. And I just want you in your minds... I, to imagine all of these things piling up. It wasn't just one thing. It was a compilation of things that, that added all kind of emotional and physical trauma upon Jesus. It started out with a sleepless night of prayer in the garden. In Luke chapter 22, Luke records, he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And being in agony, it goes on to say, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Concentrate on that last expression. His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There's ongoing controversy as to whether or not there was actually blood mingled with the sweat in Jesus. Uh, many think that there was. Uh, others doubt that that might have happened. I would just submit to you, however you take that expression, it denotes the enormous trauma that Jesus was under in anticipation of what was coming. Remember that he's the divine son of God and he can see with a perfect eye what's about to happen in the hours that are coming. This is going to be a horrible, torturous death that he would endure. And he's praying to God about it. Uh, but notice his submissive attitude. Not my will, but thine be done. Jesus was willing to do this. He went voluntarily to do this, and we must remember that. But he spent that night prior to his arrest and crucifixion, a sleepless night of prayer in the garden. He was betrayed by a man who should have been a friend. Of course, we're talking about Judas Iscariot. Judas betrayed Jesus. We know that well. We know that Jesus was the betrayer. It had been predicted that he would be. Have you ever wondered why was it necessary for the Jews to have somebody betray Jesus? Everybody knew who Jesus was. He was a public figure. He was known by the masses. He was out in the, in the open preaching and teaching constantly. Uh, even in this immediate time frame when he would be arrested, every day he had been in the temple teaching people. Why did they need someone to betray Jesus? Everybody knew who Jesus was. Well, Luke gives us the answer in chapter 22, beginning verse 2. In Luke 22, verse 2, the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Now, there's the key. They knew if they seized Jesus when he was out with the masses of the people, the people would rebel against that. There'd be a mob. They all loved Jesus. It was the leadership of the Jews who were so jealous of their power, they hated Jesus, and they sought an opportunity to kill him. 
And so then it goes on to say, Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray them unto him. And they were glad and coveted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. There's the reason they needed Judas. They needed someone of the inner circle of Jesus to be able to find a time when he'd be off, away from the crowds. And so Judas promised to fulfill that role. He sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. They couldn't grab him when he was out with the masses of people. They needed a time when he was away. And Judas agreed to do that. But can you imagine? Betrayal by a friend. You know, probably all of us have experienced some sort of a situation in our life when someone that we really trusted or counted upon let us down or did something really to hurt us. None of us have experienced the likes of what Judas did to Jesus. That also would have increased the emotional strain on our Savior. And then Jesus was deserted by all of his closest friends. We're talking about the apostles, the near disciples of Jesus, those who had been with him traveling, observing everything that he did and taught. We know Peter denied Jesus. And oftentimes I think we maybe heap more on Peter than he deserves because he wasn't the only one. He was more vocal about it perhaps, but he wasn't the only one who ran away in the moment of trial. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 56 All this was done that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Notice, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And so it wasn't Peter only, but he was left truly as a man alone when all of his disciples forsook him and fled. Again, I just want you to try to imagine that if it had been you, already been betrayed by a friend, and now all the rest of those who had been close to you leave you behind. They run off. They're scared. They're... They're, they're afraid for their own lives and they leave you alone. No one there to serve as a resource of strength from among his friends. Following that, Jesus was submitted to the equivalent of six trials in the matter of just a few hours. Uh, this is an interesting study in itself to trace through the various trials that Jesus endured. He was taken first to Annas and then to Caiaphas. Those were two men who in a perverted way were sort of sharing the office of high priest among the Jews. Then he was taken before the whole Sanhedrin council, the 70-member high council of the Jews in Jerusalem. They sent him to Pilate. Pilate, when he found out that Jesus was from Galilee, sent him to Herod. Herod said, I'm not going to have anything to do with that political football, and he sends him back to Pilate. Six trials, if you can call them that, six trials in the matter of just a few hours. Now there was no, you know, when we think of a trial, I think we're inclined to think justice, fair play, things being handled correctly and legally, and that definitely wasn't the case in these so-called trials of Jesus. In Luke chapter 23, verse 2, it says, they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is a king. Well, wait a minute. That's not true, right? We know that that's not true. Jesus had taught just the opposite. In Matthew 22, verse 21, Jesus had taught, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Jesus had never forbade anyone to pay their taxes to Caesar. He had never taught that. But you see, in the course of these trials that we're describing, They had to come up with some lies because there was no true basis for which they could condemn Jesus to death. 
And so they had to come up with some sort of false testimony or lie against him. I want you to imagine yourself. You've been arrested. You've been thrown in jail. And now you're put on trial. Trial for your life. If you lose this trial, you're going to be executed. And so now liars become come up and begin to take the witness stand, testifying against you things that you never said or did. Can you imagine how traumatic that would be? How stressful it would be to endure those who were lying about you with the purpose of causing you to be executed. Again, that's what Jesus did. In Mark chapter 14, verse 65, some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. In the course of all this, he's being taunted and humiliated, uh, belittled uh, and shamed in, in as much as the, those who were there could do so. And yet he tolerated it all. Remember, it had been prophesied of him he would be like a lamb, dumb before his shearer, so opening not his mouth. Jesus never responded in kind. He never answered back. He never threatened. How easy it would have been for him to threaten those who were treating him this way. And he had the power to punish them on the spot if he chose to do so, and he did not. He humbly submitted to that kind of abuse. Then we think the real physical torture of Jesus begins when he was submitted to the Roman scourge. The Romans are now his, his uh, 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 those who have him in captivity. And the Romans scourge him. In, Rome, in Matthew 27, 26, when he had scourged Jesus, it's not about Pilate, when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The Roman scourge looked something like this. Uh, it was not like a long bull whip that we imagine when we think of a whip. It was more a, a short-handled whip with a wooden handle, and to the end of it braided several strands of leather. And then, as this picture denotes to those leather strands, would be woven in at the end small, small pieces of maybe bone or glass to tear and rip the flesh, and lead balls to bruise as they hit. It was an absolutely brutal device designed to inflict as much torture and pain as possibly could be inflicted. Now, this scourging of Jesus before his crucifixion, what about that? I actually think, there's, there's some controversy about this, but I actually think that the scourging of Jesus prior to the, him being crucified was an unusual case of double punishment in, in, in Jesus' instance. Some argue that all prisoners were scourged before they were crucified. Others think not. And so there's some controversy among historians. We know Jesus was scourged before he was crucified. Why would that be so? I actually think that John may reveal the purpose for that. In John 19, beginning verse 1, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Pilate therefore went out forth, went forth again and said to them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priest therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. I believe that, that John is suggesting that we know that Pilate wanted out of this situation. He was faced with the dilemma of an obviously innocent man, and yet the Jewish rulers were screaming for him to be crucified. I think John is suggesting in his wording that Pilate had him scourged, hoping that when he brought him out and presented him to the mob of Jewish leaders in this terribly beaten and bloody form, that they would have been satisfied, that's, okay, that's enough, we'll let it go at that. 
I think Pilate was hoping that when they saw him beaten, and the Roman scourge would have beaten a man nearly to death. Remember, the Jews had a rule. You can beat a man with 40 stripes, no more. And so they would do 40 save one in case they had miscounted to not go over a limit. The Romans didn't have that kind of a limit. And so Jesus was beaten by the Romans and would have been literally beaten to the point of death. The, the commanding centurion would say, okay, stop. If we hit him again, he may die on, on the spot. That's how badly Jesus was beaten. The, the, those leather strands of that scourge with the bits of metal or, or uh, bone woven in would just actually tear the flesh away. Massive blood loss would have occurred. Jesus was really literally beaten to the point of death. Pilate perhaps hoped that that would be enough, but it wasn't. Notice the Jewish leaders cried out the more, crucify him, crucify him. And so I think Jesus endured an unusual double punishment by scourging before crucifixion. Now, are you you beginning to get the point of this? It's not just one thing. It's a whole compilation of things that happened to Jesus leading up to his death. We have to be mindful of that. This, this is the price that was paid for our sinfulness. And that's a, that's a very serious consideration for those of us who are Christians to remember. We, as we said, we do it every Lord's Day when we take the Lord's Supper. We're just thinking of this from the evidence's standpoint, though. How could a man endure the things that are piling up on Jesus? After the scourging, there was the episode with the purple robe and the crown of thorns. Remember now he's in the custody of the Romans. And the Romans don't like the Jews anyway. And so now they have a man who has been identified as the king of the Jews. Well, what about a king? A king ought to have a robe and a crown and a scepter. And so in Matthew chapter 27, we read, beginning verse 27, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had planted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that, they had mocked him. They took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And so this business with the robe and crown was just the Romans heaping uh, insult upon injury, I suppose, if you wanted to put it that way. They put this purple robe on him and made a crown out of thorns and put it on his head, then beat it into his scalp with that reed that they had given to him as a pretend scepter. All of this just by way of mocking and humiliation. That crown of thorns, when you stop to think about it, after the scourging, it doesn't even seem like it's that significant. But if you were just to focus upon that crown of thorns being beaten down into the scalp of your head, that itself would just be excruciating pain, almost indescribable. Jesus suffered that for us. We have to think that when they put that robe on his beaten, bloody back, that the blood would probably have coagulated to that cloth. And when they ripped it off of his back, more bleeding. Jesus has suffered massive blood loss before he ever goes to the cross of Calvary. Then, it tells us that he was forced to carry his own cross. Now, again, uh, this as a standalone item, may not seem so significant, but it does tell us something about how badly wounded Jesus already was. In John chapter 19, verse 17, it says, He bearing His cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha. But Matthew goes on to explain, chapter 27, verse 32, And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, 
him they compelled to bear his cross. And what seems to clearly be implied there is that Jesus was already in such a bad shape that he wasn't able to carry the cross to Calvary. You have to think that Jesus was in rare physical condition prior to all this that is being heaped upon him. And the fact that he needs assistance in carrying the cross probably suggests to us that he's already in a badly weakened condition on his way to Calvary because of what has already happened. Now, we identified these as pre-crucifixion events. These are things, all of this happened to him before he ever got to Calvary, before he was nailed on his cross, right? But all of that, you have to agree, is terribly significant in regards to the physical torture and trauma, the, the emotional stress that being heaped upon Jesus. Let's talk about the crucifixion for a moment. I've showed you a picture like this before, and I always try to explain by that. I'm not trying to identify that as a picture of Jesus on the cross. I'm just suggesting that as the picture of a man crucified in the manner that Romans were known to crucify an individual. You might notice that the arms are, are outstretched, but the knees are bent when they were nailed to the cross, and that was by design. Uh, those who have studied crucifixion from a medical standpoint suggest to you to us that a man would hang with his weight by his arms for as long as he could, but hanging that way, the muscles of the chest, uh, all that controls breathing, begins to suffer paralysis from that stretched out arms hanging by the way the body from the arm. And so then uh, the man begins to suffocate. He can't breathe. And so then he would put the weight on his feet and raise himself up with his legs to take some of that load off of his arms and shoulders so that he can breathe again. And so he gets a few breaths, but then the pain in his legs and feet is so intense he can't endure that any longer and he's forced to sag back down and hang from his arms. This would just be a repeated cycle as the man struggles to gain uh, just the breath, just to, just to breathe, to get a breath of air uh, is, is what's going on here. This, this is why the Romans would crucify a man this way. There are accounts of men enduring on a Roman cross for several days before they ultimately died. And in Jesus' case, it was six hours. I think the fact that Jesus died in six hours probably is a further confirmation of what we were saying a minute ago, that Jesus received an unusual double punishment when he was scourged prior to his crucifixion. What about these nails through the hands and feet? Some skeptics argue that that may be a biblical inaccuracy because they said Romans weren't crucified. Romans didn't crucify people that way. They tied them to their crosses. They didn't nail them to their crosses. Well, the, the New Testament very definitely uh, affirms that Jesus was nailed to the cross. John chapter 20, verse 27, when Jesus appeared after his resurrection... He told Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hand. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus definitely was nailed to the cross. Archaeological discoveries in recent years have confirmed they've found skeletal remains of men who were crucified by Romans and can confirm that Romans did at least sometimes nail their victims to the cross. Concerning those nails again, let me just relate something we've talked about before, but not long ago I read an article about those nails. Now, 
when you think about him being nailed in the hands, many times we think about being nailed in the palm of the hand, but that wouldn't have been very strong. It would have been pretty easy for a nail to tear out because it's going to be for many hours holding the weight of the body. Most who have studied this suggest that the nail was placed here at the base of the hand, right, right through the wrist area here. And then there would be enough uh, substance there to hold the weight of the body with a nail. But that being the case, we're, we're told that that nail would have gone right through the area. You know, you've, you've known people, maybe some of you have had carpal tunnel surgery because there's many nerves in a bundle right here in the wrist area of the hand because our hands are very sensitive with nerve endings so that we can feel and touch and do work. That nail would have pierced right through that bundle of nerves. And they, they, the indication is that the pain of that itself would have been indescribably horrible. But again, it's what Jesus endured for us. Finally, let me talk just briefly about some things that happened after Jesus died. He's still on the cross. And so I'm calling this post-crucifixion just by want of a better title. But just talking about some things that happened to the body of Jesus after he died on the cross. In John chapter 19, beginning verse 32, Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and the other, which was crucified with him. The question is asked, why would they break the legs of the victims? Do you remember that picture we showed just a minute ago, how the knees were bent so that a man could raise his weight up on his legs to relieve the weight off of his arms? Well, if you break their legs, they can't do that anymore. And then they're just forced to hang by their arms, and soon thereafter they would suffocate to death because they couldn't breathe. And so that's why they came. Jesus Jesus was crucified. There were two thieves crucified on either side of him, you remember. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and the other, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another Scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. All of this was in amazing fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, but in regards to his bones, it had been prophesied that no bone of his body would be broken, but also that he would be pierced. Both things were accomplished by this Roman soldier who thrust his spear into Jesus' side. They didn't break his legs, but this Roman soldier did cast a spear into his side. Someone might ask, why would they do that if he's dead already? I don't know, uh, maybe just because they're that kind of people. Maybe they're just that mean. But certainly we know that the outcome of it was to fulfill the prophecy. Medical experts who studied a case like Jesus' crucifixion would, would tell us that in, in a man who had been so badly beaten as Jesus and who had suffered such an, a, a massive amount of blood loss at this point in time, that, that that spear thrust into the side of Jesus must have surely gone to his heart. Now, a Roman soldier would have been trained to do that sort of thing. He would have known how to strike a man with a spear uh, in order to deliver a lethal blow. And medical experts say likely, there's no proving this, but it's likely that the spear went through and uh, reached to the heart of Jesus because water and blood came out. The pericardium, the sac of fluids around the heart, uh, and the heart itself probably would have been the only place left in the body of Jesus at this point.
that could have produced an observable flow of blood and water. Again, that's just that's uh, medical speculation, uh, but seems to have good basis. Uh, Jesus had that spear thrust into his side. Now, again, we have a simple point with our lesson this morning. Our simple point from an evidences standpoint is to confirm that Jesus died on the cross of Calvary. You can't have a resurrection until you first have a dead man. I simply ask you, do you believe that there's any conceivable way that Jesus or any other mortal human being could have survived all that Jesus was exposed to as we've studied in our lesson this morning? I hope you agree with me. There's no way. And so hang on to that. And we're going to build upon that as we continue our study in our lesson tonight, Lord willing. But now let's just stop here for a minute. Let's just stop here. Let's just talk about how Jesus died on the cross of Calvary. In a few minutes, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper to remember all these things that we've talked about in our lesson this morning. But what we also have to recall is that Jesus did this in order to provide a means for our salvation. There was no other reason for that. There was no other reason for Jesus to endure all those things other than to make a path of salvation open for us. He's done that. The proof is abundant that Jesus suffered that kind of horrible death on our behalf. Our question to you now, very simply, is will you accept that sacrifice? Will you take advantage of the price that was paid to make salvation available for you? If you believe these things, will you repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, and be baptized for the remission of sins? We hope you will. We're ready and anxious to assist you in your obedience. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away, the Hebrew writer says we crucify Him afresh if we fall back into sin. Think of those men who nailed Jesus to the cross. And we're told that if we are a child of God, but we turn away, we're crucifying Him again. Do you want to be responsible for that? If you've not been faithful to your Lord, come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing.